Hi, and welcome back to the Utojua Hujui podcast. Now, a quick word before we get in. Your girl, Aileen, has a little bit of a potty mouth, which means she does not mind her language and she speaks the fluent French, <laughs> um, which is all to say that I understand that some people are a little bit uncomfortable with this language. So here's just a warning for you. If, however, you are not uncomfortable and you would like to learn about the world around you and capitalism and colonialism and just like... All this fun shit with a dazzling, brilliant, and funny host, if I do say so myself. Um, keep listening. Hi, ho, hello, and welcome back to the Utajuo Hujui podcast with your girl Aileen, and it is a bonus episode. Well, it's not really a bonus episode as much as it is like me trying to capitalize off an upcoming movie and like trying to be smart about my content. So here we are. Hi. How are you? How have you guys been? Um, so before I get into what I want to talk about this week, I just want to have like a little bit of a rant at y'all and it's about the the new rule the oh, new clarification provided by the kfcb like kenya's film police i suppose and, and also morality police in a, like a weird fucked up way anyway so like the kfcb has now said that lgbtq plus content will no longer be allowed in kenya and it's like what are you trying to achieve and like what do you consider to be lgbtq plus content and even if like you give me a definition i still don't care because what you're doing is wrong but like what are you trying to achieve right if you think that stopping us from like watching them and when seeing them represented positively on tv is going to make people less gay i i think you're going to be in for a disappointment and so I'm just confused as to what it is the government, I suppose, is trying to do and, and why and, and what like what they hope to achieve. I'm just confused because it like it's wrong. It doesn't make sense. But it's like, what were you going for, honey? Honestly. Anyway, so before I get into again, what I want to talk about, what am I drinking today? Water. I'm really trying to... <laughs> i'm really trying to like hydrate it's it's really hard because i don't like the taste of water and if you're confused as like what do you mean water has a taste I'm like yeah water has a taste and i really don't like the way that it tastes and it's just it's I, I i can't explain it but i'm drinking water um and today we're talking about um the dahomean amazons yes yes the warriors of the, of the dahomey kingdom now as you know viola davis's the woman king came out on the 16th of september to somewhat rave reviews so i thought i'd re-release an old episode from the early days of my podcast where everything was crusty shit so i re i've now recording everything and adding more context and voila a kind of new episode whoop, whoop. so let's get into it today we are talking about gender complementarity amazon warriors in west africa put simply on the menu today we will be centering badass women and the society that empowered them and by looking at the dahomey kingdom in modern day benin we will then have a little rant about how European civilizations have fucked with African femininity because it wouldn't be that kind of podcast if we didn't get into a social justice -y kind of rant, you know? Now, why is this important? Uh, it's important because some of these women, some of these warriors, were the inspiration for Black Panther. Yes, the Dora Mijale were inspired by the Amazons of Dahomey. 
More importantly, the Dahomey are but one of multiple African societies that treated their women well, unlike the European quote-unquote civilizations, who mostly saw women as vessels for male heirs. So, we live in a time where women continue to agitate for a more central role in a predominantly patriarchal world. Like, if you don't believe me, just ask yourself why women in politics are deemed bossy or emotional, or why there aren't a lot of women in politics. Just, if you ever have the time, I want you to sit and really talk to a female politician or, or a woman that's tried to enter the political space or operates in that space. And I really want you to listen to their experiences because almost every single person I've talked to, there's just so much shit that goes on. That's so much shit that, like, no one calls out. It's... I don't understand how their souls haven't been crushed. Like, you have to be a very special kind of person to endure that and, and, and still want to continue to be in that space, you know? So... As a result, women are often examined through the lens of oppression, with many historians scrambling to fit pre-colonial African societies in a binary of oppressive or free. When these categories and our understanding of them do not make presumptions on the definitions of oppressive or free based on African context, but the Western one. Nevertheless, using this binary, which I've just criticized, what if I told you that there was a place where women's contributions were acknowledged, accepted, and even welcomed? This exploration takes us to present-day Benin in West Africa, to the ancient kingdom of Dahomey. It was a place where women in the pre-colonial era enjoyed extraordinary liberties and powers. Now, this is not to say that the patriarchy was smashed. The patriarchy was still patriarchy, you know, um, but rather like it wasn't that bad. Um, instead, the kingdom of Dahomey embraced the different yet complementary roles of men and women. In, in fact, they practiced something known as complementarity. And that, according to the Oxford Dictionary, means a relationship or situation in which two or more different things improve or emphasize each other's qualities. Now, the, the the way the Dahomeans practice complementarity is not the way that it is currently used in most re religious circles um, as a means to justify the current subservience of women. And I'm looking at you, evangelical Christians in the US, but I'm talking about like complementarity, like peanut butter and jelly, like both fundamentally equal things, but like bringing very different things that gel well together and highlight the best qualities of each. Now, this complementarity was the result of the duality of their creator gods, Maulisa, a combined deity that governs the pantheon of their pantheon of gods. Mau had female characteristics and Lisa had male characteristics, each playing a critical role in creation inspired the Dahomeyan society to follow in their footsteps. And follow they did. In order to better understand the kingdom and the models embraced by the Dahomey society, we need to understand the relationship between women and the palace. The palace was the centre of political life in the kingdom. The palace as an institution was a massive enterprise, and it could contain up to 8,000 citizens living in a series of royal residences, most of which were women. Because men or princes were not allowed within the confines of the palace, only women were. As a result, like it meant that these women were the bridge connecting the monarch to his ministers, his subjects, and his heirs. Like they 
were the gatekeepers to power, um, they were also vital in collecting and disseminating intelligence. Female contacts within the palace, palace might even have been able to hurry the demise of a reigning monarch. Like These women were powerful. Now, these women were known as the Ahosi, meaning wives of the king, or more poetically, wives of the leopard. These wives, pretty much like in the case of King Solomon, saw the role of the polygamous marriage as a political affair. The women, or Ahosi once more, yes, repetition is what creates learning, and, and like, yes, I fully subscribe, so just bear with me. The women, or Ahosi, were involved in the administration of the kingdom as they worked for the advancement of the monarchy's interests. In this manner, the king's polygamous household was also the administrative arm of the state. Like, these women were fucking powerful. And, like, I cannot stress to you that this kingdom started in about the about the 1600s and had its demise in the early 20th century, so, like, early 1900s. And for the most part, like, this social structure is what existed within the palace. This is how the monarchs governed in the kingdom of Dahomey. So it's absolutely fascinating that, like, while the Dahomeyan kingdom are empowering women politically and giving them a real public role public facing role in the west you have women having you ha in the west you have like women not being allowed to go study you have women who um who are still judged on their ability to produce an heir like it is it is worlds apart um therefore Again, these women helped make decisions regarding public policy, foreign relations, and war, as well as engaging in domestic practices such as agriculture, trade, and commerce to earn a familial income. Finally, women served in the king's personal guard and national army. And I threw a lot of information at you. So let me just, let me just like roll back, simplify. Women were soldiers, intelligent agents, politicians, political advisors, mediators, and keepers of government records. And the life in the palace was governed by also like a strict meritocracy. So with hard work, skill, an individual could win wealth and higher status. I mean, let me just say like, this right now feels like such a lie. And being disillusioned really sucks because you know that sometimes shit just bad shit's gonna happen to you and like there's not really much you can do about it if 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 the universe is like you know what today fuck you um i'm sorry but because the palace was a meritocracy women could also advance in wealth status and power independent of their husbands women could also advance because no distinction was made between domestic functions performed in the name of the king as the head of household and state functions performed in the name of the king as head of state all activities they performed for the palace had implications for national policy and administration now this point i've already fallen prey to the trap um of something very very stupid um and like i don't want to waste this opportunity by failing to point out how different this like all of this is from the civilizations that were imposed upon us however in so doing I've, I've fallen into the trap again the trap of comparing african civilizations to european ones to measure their worth and doing so by using european civilizations as a yardstick because every because at every turn i was like hell yeah white people like take one you and your civilization go fucking do one but i realized that you know this was not ideal because i was engaging in this comparison from like a basis of you know um european civilizations are superior like that's why it feels good to be because i'm feeling vindicated i'm feeling vindicated that like in the past 
our civilizations were more equitable and more equal um, than those who were later imposed upon us. Um, so not not great. So like, let's return to the Dahomeans. Um, each king was doubled by a, and I, I swear, forgive me, I'm going to be mispronouncing so much, just please bear with. So each king was doubled by a copchito or rain mate, who was a woman drawn from the wives of earlier kings. This woman heard appeals in religious cases from the court of the minister of religion with a final appeal to the king himself. As the highest ranking woman official and reputed to be very wealthy, she had a separate court and entourage within the central palace and was forbidden contacts with all men. Dahomeans summoned to the king's presence prostrated themselves and spoke to a woman called the Daklo. She then conveyed their words to the king. The Daklo also distanced the king male's leaders from direct conversation with the monarch. The principal men of the court and army never went nearer than 20 feet to the king. Whatsoever they had to say to his majesty, first kissing the ground because of course supplication is necessary, they first had to whisper into the ear of the Daklo, who went to the king and having received his answer, she then returned it to them. This distancing mystified the person of the king and made it known that to gain access to the king, one must work through the women of the palace. I think more importantly, this distancing meant that the Daklo, the woman, could change the message as she saw fit, which meant that like she had the, some real ability to fuck shit up. And that's a lot of power to put literally on an, on an individual, let alone like, you know, yeah. It's, it, it, it is a lot of power. Now, the fact that women played a role in access to the monarch is incredibly symbolic. And allow me to flex my English high-level IB skills because I worked hard. We all worked hard for that for, for, for that degree. So, like, mm, let us do this. In being the gatekeeper to power, you control power. It's like a switch, right? There's always electricity running through the socket. But switching it on allows the power to flow through your laptop or whatever. Likewise, the king was always present, but the women were the switch, connecting you to power. And nowhere was this symbolism more realized than in the Amazons of Dahomey, a legend that spans over 200 years until 1979, when the last Amazonian Dahomey warrior died. Dahomey's female warriors existed as a fighting force between the 18th century to the late 19th century, initially described as Amazons by French and British accounts due to their fighting prowess, bravery, and independence from patriarchal social norms. They were called Ahosi Omino. The origins of this force are contested. One account attributes the use of female soldiers to King, oh lord help me, Hujbaja? H-O-U-E-G-B-A-D-J-A, Hugbaja, I think, I'm really sorry, um, who ruled from 1645 to 1685, and he was the third king of Dahomey. He is said to have started a group as a corps of elephant hunters called the Jibeto from his wives and slaves from conquest to neighboring villages. According to Dahomeyan tradition, King Gezo and his Jambeto went elephant hunting. And Gezo is also the king that you're going to be seeing in The Woman King. Uh, we'll move on. A group of 20 um, Jibeto attacked a herd of 40 elephants, killing three and wounding several hunters. Impressed by their courage, the king praised them, the Jibeto, asking what would and could suit them better. They responded, a nice manhunt would, would suit them better. And into Gezo's army they went. In fact, it was Gezo ruling from 1818 to 1858 who formalized the Dahomeyan Amazonians into a formal military force. 
royal praise singers were recorded lauding King Gezo as the only monarch in the world who held an Amazon army. However, shortly before formalization, the Amazonians of Dahomey made their first entry into written history. French slave trader Jean-Pierre Thibault described seeing women with long poles acting as police at the port. After the early 18th century, their presence in history became increasingly detailed. French trader Prunau de Pomagorge reported that the Amazonians were deployed in ceremonial parades. He witnessed parades by groups of female troops armed with muskets and short swords, end quote. They were, and I quote, organized into regiments under their own military commanders. The size of this female force was several hundred, between eight, 180 to 500. Gezo, in his formalizing efforts, increased the number of Amazonians from several hundred to several thousand, comprising between 30% to 40% of the um, overall Amazonian military. He recruited, he recruited his initial Amazon force from foreign captives, a common price in the Dahomeyan army. After 1851, Gezo recruited locally from his third wives and free Dahomeyan women. Of the latter, a majority of recruits were daughters of Dahomeyan chiefs, recruited at eight or nine. The last class of recruits were criminals, this is where it gets kind of funny, adulterous women and shrews who proved intolerable to their husbands. Like, imagine pissing your husband off so much that he ships you off to the fucking army and everyone's like, yeah, we understand, we completely get it, my god. Now, these women led a life of celibacy and were legally married to the king. However, the marriage functioned as a legal obligation and performance of loyalty. Remember, they practiced a Solomonian marriage in which, like, this polygamy was more political than anything else. Um, but of course, European visitors met with a brain fuck of celibate African women, thought that this celibacy is what granted them their strength, as if, like, all those now fat guys are right. And I don't know, because, like, what? We're not going to get into why I don't know, <laughs> but for real, in a context where black female bodies were commodified and sexualized, to meet women like who did not fuck but instead fought as men must have been a fucking mind trip. Because I think at this point, um, I might be getting my dates wrong, but if I have them correctly, then this is around the same time as Sarah Bartman the coy South African woman who was kidnapped from South Africa, shipped over to England. She was paraded as, like, this freak for having a big ass and, like, big boobs and, like, a big tummy. Um, it, it, just Google her. It's it, 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 it's really fucked up. Um, now, the female warriors of Dahomey learned survival skills and indifference to pain and death, storming acacia thorn defenses and military exercises and executing prisoners. Discipline was emphasized. These exercises were part of the insensitivity training that the Amazonians were subjected to. Part of the insensitivity included exposing virgin troops to death. Jean Bayol, a French naval officer visiting the kingdom in 1889, watched the examination of a young recruit, Nancisca. When presented with the young prisoner bound in a basket, she, and I quote, walked jauntily up to swung her sword three times with both hands, then calmly cut the last flesh that attached the head to the trunk. She then squeezed the blood off her weapon and swallowed it, which is gross. At this point, I must also mention the reason why we have so many European accounts of the Dahomean kingdom is because this was also just very different, like incredibly different. Um, and this ferocity that the Amazonians were displaying at such a young age, because... 
she was young, at such a young age, carried the Amazonians from victory to victory in the early 19th century. Their victories were also aided by their efficient military structure. The Amazonian troops were structured into three sections, a center, right, and left wings. The center were the elite wing comprised of the king's bodyguards. Each of these five each of these like uh, wings had five subgroups, and those are the Jibeto, which are the huntresses, the Gulohento, which are the riflewomen, the Nyekfolento, which were the reapers, the Gohento, which were the archers, and the Agbalia, which were the gunners. Now, the Jibeto were the elephant huntresses that birthed the entire force, and they were the focus, are the focus of the women king. They wore an iron band crowned with two antelope hoops around their heads. This symbolized their power, strength, and flexibility. They were armed with long rifles and curved daggers attached to their belts. Um, when, again, we've already gone through, like, how they were formed, um, but we also need to talk about, like, why it was they were also invited into the army, like, why it also made sense from a pragmatic perspective, because Gezo could have just said, no, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, we're good. Um, but, um, the kingdom's ongoing wars depleted their supply of men willing and capable of fighting. So women were then invited to replace them, specifically the, the, the Beto. The, um, the kingdom's wars were ongoing because Dahomey was a slave-trading kingdom. Yeah, that's how it made its wealth. Um, quoting now from Smithsonian Magazine, and I quote, This was a slave-trading kingdom, so warfare was part of their annual cycle. They needed to gather humans to be part of this heinous transatlantic slave trade, as well as for human sacrifices to posthumously deified kings, end quote. So... Here we must discuss something that makes me really uncomfortable and a topic I must approach with great sensitivity. Um, and that is the role of the Dahomey Kingdom in the transatlantic slave trade. Um, quoting now from Slate, and I quote, Take the example of Ulale Kosola, alias Kujo Kazula Lewis, whose village Bante, north of Abome, was raided by the Dahomeyan army in 1859. With 109 other captives, Kosola was sent into slavery to Alabama on board the slave ship Clotilda, and it was considered to be the last slave ship to land in the U.S. Like, that's, yeah. Um, end quote. While Dahomey was not the center of the slave trade, they, and now quoting from Vox's Today Explained, accounted for 5% of overall slave exports, about 600,000 people out of, si out of 13 million, end quote. Some figures put this, put this as high as 20% of the total slave trade, and historian Robin Law estimates that between 5,000 to 8,000 enslaved Africans were shipped from Dahomey every year, which is not a tiny number. Yes, Dahomey made its wealth through slavery, perhaps the worst kind of slavery in human existence. In fact, in Dahomey, the only moral problem with slavery was that Dahomeyans could not be enslaved. And this rule was broken. Not frequently, but it was still broken. But before you say, oh, there's no way they could have known what was going to happen when those enslaved Africans got, got to the, um, got, got to the um, South America, North America... They did. According to Robin Law, um, the royal family of Dahomey must have known how badly the people they were enslaving would be treated. They had sent diplomats to Brazil and Portugal, both sides of the Atlantic, who returned with information on conditions. Quoting now from Ana Lucia Arujo, and I quote, during the era of the Atlantic slave trade, the Kingdom of Dahomey sent at least five embassies to Brazil and Portugal in the years 1750, 1795, 1805, 1811, and 1818. 
These missions were aimed at negotiating the terms of the Atlantic slave trade, end quote. So the the Dahomeans weren't just invested in the system, they also helped design it. Additionally, the royal family must have also known how badly the people they were enslaving would be treated because they also lost royal members to the slave trade, with King Adandozan to be the one of the only monarchs to send members of his own family into slavery. Some of them would make their way back home where they would no doubt explain just what the fuck had happened to them. And if you think that the royal blood spared them from the worst excesses of slavery, you'd be sorely mistaken. Yet the Dahomeans kept sending slaves into the New World until 1859. This is something the movie tries to soften, and I completely understand this impulse, simply because the fact that Africans participated in and profited from the transatlantic slave trade complicates the narrative of the trade that paints Africans as solely victims. Unfortunately, bad faith actors do use this fact to diminish or in some instances completely eradicate the culpability of the Europeans, the Americans, and the enslavers themselves. They literally had to create an entire system, structure, to justify and perpetuate this institution because, you know, they they liked it, like it benefited them. Um, which is why I can understand why the movie The Woman King wanted to soften this. But this is not fair to the Dahomeans or history. If we are to properly account for the slave trade and learn from its horrors, we must properly account for everyone's role in the slave trade. We must consider what incentivized Africans to sell their brethren to slave traders, some conducting the trade and doing this with the knowledge of what would happen to the people that they were selling into slavery. Because if we don't have this discussion, we miss a huge chunk of the story. And, and, and we also miss an important part of the story because... That and understanding why they sold out some of their own um, would help us understand why other people betray their own all the time. Now, the Jibeto were the core of the story because they conducted the slave raids. And by all accounts, they were highly successful at this. And we must not forget this. I'm not sure if the Jibeto's participation in the perpetuation of slavery means that we are to discount the novelty of their existence or if the stain that it leaves on their legacy is one that can ever be erased, or if it's one that should ever be erased. Um, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. I just, this is the information. I wanted to be intellectually honest, and I really hope that this isn't used by somebody to say, um, like I said, like diminish the culpability of, of, of um, North America, South America, Europe, whiteness in general um now moving on the gulohento were the largest proportion of the women soldiers they each had a long rifle and short sword and had incredible hand-to-hand combat skills while the nyekfo lento were the smallest in number they were however particularly feared the razor sharp knives were rumored to cut men clean in two the Gohento were fewer than the Gulohento. They were young women with the ability to shoot poisoned arrows with impressive accuracy. They also carried firearms on their side. As the Dahomean warriors received better guns and weapons because they had, you know, the money to trade for guns and weapons because they were selling people into slavery, the role of the Gohento gradually decreased. Finally, the Agbalia accounted for about a fifth of the fighting force. 
Using 17th century guns, these women became increasingly relevant as Dahomey fought off colonial powers. Women in this group could load and fire a flintlock musket in 30 seconds when their opponents would take twice as long. Now, despite the strength of their training and the efficiency of their military organizations, the Amazonians encountered a series of defeats in the late 19th century. After the defeat at Abe Okuta in 1851, in this campaign, 2,000 Amazonians were killed, and another 700 to 800 in 1864 in a second attack on Abe Okuta. This marked the death knell of the Amazonians as a fighting force in national defense. In the First and Second Franco-Dahomian War, their numbers were decimated. An oral tradition claims at the Battle of Agion in 1892, only 17 out of the 434 Amazons came back. While individual Amazonians survived, the army as a legitimate fighting force was completely destroyed. They were disbanded after Dahomey became a French protectorate. And thus, with that particular change in legal status, the idea of women and femininity began to change in Dahomey. And not just Dahomey, but across the entire African continent. And here is where we go on the rant that I had promised y'all, because, hang on, wait, wait, I need, to, I need to cite my sources. My rant is inspired by my friend who sent me an amazing resource, hey Skadoosh, um, The Invention of Women, Making an African Sense of Western Gender Discourse by Dr. Oyeronke Oyewumi. And honestly, go get this book, read it, it's great. In her work, Dr. Oyewumi uses Yoruba culture as a case study in the colonization of the African woman. She argues, and rightfully so, that the category of women did not exist prior to European colonization. She criticizes the West and history for maintaining the fiction that gender categories are universal, gender is a fundamental organizing principle in all societies, there is a universal category of women, and that the category of women exists pre-culture and is fixed in time and place in opposition to the category of men. All of this, which is like a lot of like socio-political jargon, but essentially what she's trying to say is that like the European colonization imported a very European understanding of, of, of women, gender politics and gender dynamics that African societies did not have. And because it was forcibly imposed upon us, and it, it, it kind of adopted this universality that basically acted retroactively say that, that this has always been the way things have been because this is the way things are now when that's not true um and here's where things get complex um because a majority of the ways the history of indigenous cultures was recorded was in english in fact prior to facing mount kenya the cultural practices of the gakuyu my tribe were recorded in english and English is kind of like not a good language. Um, if you've ever had to read a work of translation that's been translated from one language into English, you'll kind of realize that like, it's not great. Um, it's just it, like you miss out a lot. But I'm not sure if that's just a crit critique of all works of translation, really. I, 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 don't, I, I don't know. So, for example, the role of women in Kikuyu society was that of the pastoralist. As a woman, I would have tended to the soil and the children. And in this there was and is power. It was not female work, but the work of women. Does that, do, do, do you understand the distinction? It wasn't female work, but the work of women. And there is a difference between the two. Any distinction made between men and women was for the purposes of reproduction and labor, not for hierarchy, class, or power distribution. The category of woman was the first victory of the colonial state and a victory that reverberates through time. Now, <clears throat> 
the sense you get about uh, post or rather during colonial Dahomey is the is it like the French freed the Dahomeyan women to be equal. Um, and I disagree and I'm going to quote from Oyebuni and I quote, African females were colonized by Europeans as Africans and as African women. They were dominated, exploited, and inferiorized as Africans together with African men, and then separately inferiorized and marginalized as women. End quote. Now in France, as in most colonial powers and like in their societies, um the public domain was male and the female and the private domain was female, and as a result, like women did not hold political power, like very rarely they did. So to have that particular value imposed upon a kingdom that allowed women to have and wield political power very competently does a lot of damage you know so this is why it's really important to tell their story not just on this podcast um but also on the big screen because i mean i haven't watched it yet um the woman king comes out on the 30th of september which is when this episode episode drops and I'm hoping it's going to be like a Black Panther moment because I remember watching Black Panther and it was like I'm seeing Africa positively represented and it's and it's fucking great. So like I hope it's going to be like that. Um I don't know. Uh I hope um yeah. Uh, this has been the women of the Dahomeyan Kingdom. Thank you so much for listening. Please if you can go watch the Woman King um and then we can geek out about it in my DMs. All right now. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Utajuo Hujui podcast. I really appreciate you giving me your time of day. I know that your time is very valuable. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at utajuohujui.pod. That is at U-T-A-J-U-A-H-U-J-U-I.pod on Instagram. Please don't forget to like, share, review, do all the nice things. I could really use the boost. Okay, enjoy the rest of your time on this planet. Goodbye.